This is uh, the Sahaja Yoga Meditation Program. Mike Merritt is on the panel. This is Brian Bell chatting on the microphone. And we have a guest today, a special guest, Dr. Ramesh Ranoksha. Good morning, Ramesh. Good morning. Uh, last time you were on the program, your job was research into alternative medicine at New South Wales University. Now you are senior lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry at the Medical School at Sydney University. You've moved from alternative to mainstream, from the far end of the corridor to right up front. And you're concerned with mental health and the possibility of its prevention through meditation. But before we get on to that, can I, ask, can I ask about the nature of meditation? You're a double doctor, a doctor of medicine and a PhD, a doctor of philosophy. And the subject of your PhD was meditation. So, question. With so many forms of med meditation being offered, being on sale, being praised, being trashed, what is the essence of true meditation? Well, Brian, it's a very good question. And uh, it's a question that um, hasn't really been answered properly in 40 years of scientific research, uh, in, uh, at least in the West. And, and this has led to a great deal of uh, misperception, uh, misunderstanding, not only within the scientific and academic community, but also uh, amongst consumers in Western countries. And and often um, to their great disadvantage. But uh, <clears throat> the if we go back and look at the ancient tradition and uh, the ancient and traditional descriptions of the meditative experience, we find that there is a common thread, uh, which is obvious when you start to understand what to look for. Probably the most ancient definition known to man of meditation is uh, can be found in the Mahabharata, which is a uh, uh, a story um, longer than Homer's Iliad and Odyssey combined. It, it more or less encapsulates the the Eastern philosophical outlook on life, the universe, and everything. It's and, uh, it's part of that is the Bhagavad Gita. Yes, the, the Bhagavad Gita is just a very small part of of a very very large uh, Huge. Uh, literature work. Yes, and. Um, Conservative estimates, Western archaeologists would would say that the Mahabharata is about three to three and a half thousand years old. But uh, very interestingly, if we were to um, uh, date it in accordance with the astronomical uh, configurations that are described in the Mahabharata, it comes out um, using archaeoastronomy at about seven and a half thousand years of age. So. In the Mahabharata, we have the most ancient definition of meditation known to man. And uh, there it describes meditation uh, as the state of non-thought. In fact, uh, the exact context is that a, a seeker is asking a, a, a sage or a guru, what is this thing called meditation? And the guru replies, um, he sits without movement, and like a log, he does not think. And mm -hmm. this is the most uh, definitive and uh, clear-cut definition uh, that we can find. Um, <clears throat> it's pretty unequivocal, and it talks about this experience of 
non-thought or mental silence or what we could call nivichara samadhi or thoughtless awareness. And uh, taking that central concept, if we go looking for that idea, we find it as a recurring theme throughout uh, the Indian tradition of meditation, but more broadly as meditation travelled to China, uh, other places in the world, um, that essential experience of the state of non-thought is described um, in all of the basic or fundamental texts that talk about meditation. The problem has been that Western scholars have kind of missed the point, uh, pretty much because the Western uh, scholars' philosophical uh, foundation is uh, the Cartesian paradigm. And the Cartesian paradigm is is based on the idea or the notion that uh, we are what we think. And uh, the great Cartesian um, uh, saying, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, has informed uh, the development of the Western mind for the last several hundred years. That was the big change from <coughs> medieval to Renaissance world. It is. And um, it was a, uh, a compromise or a, a, an intellectual deal made between the rationalists and uh, the churches. And um, uh, unfortunately, what this has uh, brought about is a, uh, a lack of sensitivity to probably uh, a fundamental and, um, but, but very subtle distinction um, which is the Eastern idea that we are not our mind, we are not our thoughts, we are something uh, beyond all of these things. Um, <coughs> whereas in the West, uh, we're told that we are our mind, we are our, our thinking activity, and uh, we can define ourselves only by the nature of our thoughts. And this has desensitized Western scholars, scientists, and academics to the notion of mental silence as being something important and uh, useful. Yes, the, the Western world, the history of the Western world is, is almost about the mind, isn't it? The Renaissance was the, the individual and then through into the Enlightenment age where uh, reason was all. Uh, it hasn't been easy for the Western, uh, Western civilization to grasp such a principle, such a, well, it's not alien but it could be considered alien principle as thoughtless awareness. This is the opening of a piece of music by Franz Schubert. It, well, the, all the music we'll be playing this morning is by Schubert and was all written in the last year of his very short life. Well, we're going to go now into the realization process. Those of you who would like your realization, would you desire their realization? Can I ask you to slip your shoes off? Sit comfortably. Doesn't matter whether you're on the floor or on a chair. Turn the palms, rest the, rest the hands on the thighs, on the lap, 
and turn the hand's palm upward. Now this self-realization process is towards gaining the meditation that Ramesh was talking about. Towards gaining the mental silence that is so valuable in terms of health, well-being, mental balance, joy, happiness. The regular meditation that can be brought about or can follow self-realization is enormously valuable. Now, take the right hand and place it on the heart. We'll be going through a few affirmations just to assist in this process of gaining the moksha, the union, the yoga, the joining together of the spirit within us and the great spirit of creation that surrounds us. This union is the self-realization. Now with the right hand on the heart, just ask, am I the spirit? Is that my nature? Is that my essence? Am I the spirit? Now if we take the right hand down to the point where the body meets the left leg. Just tuck the fingers in in there. That's there's a center here which is related to our knowledge and understanding. So here the request is and it is to the spirit within us. We are requesting the spirit within us which is the feminine energy within everybody. It's known by the Sanskrit name Kundalini. So the question is Kundalini or mother and the mothering energy within us. Please grant me pure knowledge. This is knowledge of the Spirit. Please grant me pure knowledge.
And if we take the hand back to the heart, and now we can endorse with this knowledge that we've gained, Mother, Mother Kundalini, I am the Spirit. So just quietly say to oneself, I am the Spirit. I am the Spirit. Just relax into that. Ease into that. Confidence and security of the Spirit. Take the right hand up and across the forehead. Thumb on one side of the forehead, fingers on the other. And hold the head quite firm and let it drop forward a little. This is the center where yesterday and today and tomorrow meet. We want to let yesterday go, conditioning and rituals and sad memories are not really of much value. On one side and on the other side, plans an organization and projections into the future are not all that valuable either. So letting the depressions of the left drop away and the stresses of the right drop away, the essence of a pure life is in the center is in the now, what Sri Mataji calls the ever-present now. So here, to gain that nowness, forgive, detach, from all those grudges, all those complications, let them go. Mother Kundalini, 
I forgive. I forgive. If we don't forgive, then that non-forgiveness gets in the way. So I forgive. Let it all drop away. Now, as the spirit in the now, take the hand, the right hand, spread the fingers and press the palm on the top of the head. Move the hand. Circle it. Press the hand so that the scalp is moving. And at this, the point of contact, the union between the spirit, between Kundalini and the great Kundalini of creation. Mother, please grant me my self-realization. Mother, please grant me my self-realization. Lift the hand a few inches above the head. Can you feel that energy? The energy that you and I are generating. That is the manifestation of the spirit that follows the process of self-realization. And it's that energy which can create or bring about valuable meditation. Let's just sit for a moment in the quiet. Ramesh Manoksha, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Psychiatry, the Medical School at Sydney University. It seems there's a worldwide <coughs> mental health problem and a, and a particular mental health crisis in Australia. Can you give us some information about this? Well, uh, Brian, I think, uh, <clears throat> first of all, there appears to be uh, a worldwide uh, mental health crisis and Australia is uh, is more or less reflecting uh, its share of the problem it's thought that 
uh, about 20% of the population at any particular time has depression, for example. And uh, this is remarkable given that um, we are a so-called first world country. Uh, most people have their uh, material needs satisfied and um, have access to opportunities to pursue a fulfilling life. And uh, despite this, uh, we have such high levels of depression and unhappiness. Strangely enough, and, and perhaps disturbingly, is that 75% of the mental illness uh, that our population experiences starts in young people, people under the age of 25. And in fact, the statistics coming out now are suggesting that 25% of young people have uh, depression and anxiety at this any is particular sort of teenagers? time. Yes, teenagers. Well, people un under the age of 25, so right across the board. And people of increasingly young ages are presenting to health professionals seeking help. Children aged 9, 10, 11, 12. The school system is seeing ever-increasing numbers of children who appear to have behavioural disturbances that are impacting on their ability to learn um, both academic skills, to acquire academic skills, uh, to learn social skills, to learn how to uh, develop those skills that will enable them to, have, to reach their potential and, and have a fulfilling and satisfying life. And, and this is very disturbing. Um, one would have expected that uh, a first world country uh, a shining example of Western civilization and all of its benefits uh, wouldn't be experiencing this level of psychological dysfunction. How does it start? It's the big mystery. We don't know. Uh, there are in uh, the individual. <coughs> about, yeah. um, well, uh, at a population level, as much as at an individual level, science uh, has yet to give us a full explanation. Does but it start with, I'm not happy? Probably. But then we have to ask ourselves, how does being not happy start? And, um, and we're starting to see some of the uh, uh, clues. So probably the biggest breakthrough we could say or the biggest shift in our understanding is that we understand that depression, for example, uh, which is a persistent state of unhappiness, uh, of uh, a serious unhappiness is reflecting a chemical imbalance in the brain. Now, this is an important recognition because what we're uh, acknowledging here is that uh, a person's mood, their behaviour is not, sometimes, not a question of choice, but in fact a, a reflection of a physiological or physical problem in their central nervous system. Can can not being happy move into depression? Yes, in fact, that seems to be so. There's a the medical, case. there's a, a chemical process along the way. Well, one would have, one would uh, presume so, because what we're looking at is a spectrum, where uh, uh, at one end of the spectrum, a person may simply be a little more unhappy than they ought to be, but if they don't have the skills to self-regulate or if the environment presents challenges to their psychological well-being that they're unable to overcome, and that progresses them further down the line or down that spectrum of unhappiness, what starts out as just being normal unhappiness or normal 
negative moods, which everyone experiences, becomes persistent and pervasive and severe, and then it becomes a depression. And then we have mild, moderate and serious depression, for example. Now, the question is, how is it that some people slide down that spectrum into mental illness and others go a little down that spectrum and then pull themselves out? And this is... uh, something that uh, mental health uh, researchers and practitioners are starting to recognise relates to uh, a thing called resilience. And resilience is our ability to bounce back from mental trauma or stress. Now, um, uh, the remarkable thing is that people of your age and my age, the parenting generation, are probably going to have better mental health than our children's generation. More resilience. Probably because we're more resilient. And this is the question, why are our young people less resilient than us, despite the fact that they have access to so much more opportunity and resources than we did? But in fact, it's probably, at least partly due to the fact that they have so much available to them, that they may may in fact um, be deprived of opportunities to learn resilience. That's one thing. The other thing is that, you know, we have in our society where we have so much choice and opportunity available to us, a divorce rate of 45%. We have uh, a media which encourages an extremely individualistic behaviour, behaviour which is intimately linked with uh, the ethos of things like consumerism and materialism. We're teaching our young people to identify with the wrong things in life and they're learning this at a very young age. And the research at the moment is showing that our young people, that in fact everyone, you and I, we learn our basic or fundamental resilience capabilities by the age of eight. Wow. And that relates to our thinking style and our thinking style is influenced by the two main adult influences in our life, which are parents and teachers. So we're seeing that our children, this is my perception, our children are being brought up in an increasingly challenging and toxic atmosphere, but with less and less social, emotional, psychological supports to cope with it. So what, so what, what is happening then is that um, the culture... Uh, uh, <coughs> our culture at the moment is exacerbating these problems. In other words, is, uh, is, 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 the, is the society, is the culture encouraging further steps down this dangerous path? Well, I, I think uh, there would be a general agreement that uh, while we can't blame society or culture or the media uh, alone, that there, there are emerging toxins risk factors in our modern society and culture that weren't present before. So, for example, we're we're seeing increasing rates of bullying in school, for example. Yes. But the evidence is now emerging that children that experience prolonged bullying at school are at higher risk of mental illness. I'll give you another example. Binge drinking is a phenomenon which is particularly characteristic of young people and, strangely enough, teenage females. But binge drinking is a specific drinking pattern that is especially effective at inducing brain damage that then increases vulnerability to mental illness. Mm. 
And uh, as mentioned earlier, the, the one of the interesting and valuable um, if, uh, cures or ways of coping with this problem is through meditation. And uh, it is meditation that we'll be considering next. Shrimataji Nirmala Devi, the founder of Sahaja Yoga, a few years ago gave a talk in the Albert Hall in London. We've played sections of this talk before on this radio program, once we played it in its entirety. But today we'd like to share with you the first seven or eight minutes of it, where she talks about the problems of today, problems that contribute to the crisis that Dr. Ramesh Manoksha has been talking about, and how self-realization can overcome them. How do all the seekers of truth? Some of you have found the truth. Some of you have not found it fully and some of you have not found it at all. But if you look around, in today's situation, you'll have to admit there's a big turmoil going on. Countries after countries are taking to all kinds of wrong things. Lot of cold war is on, people are killing each other, destroying, beautiful places, cutting each other's throat for nothing at all. They are all human beings created by God. God Almighty has created them and has brought them to this level of human awareness. At this juncture, one can see where are we going in a collective way. This is where have we to reach or is it our destiny? Is this the destiny of human beings? 
to be destroyed by each other for land or for anything else. Think of the whole world as one and think what's happening all over every day you read newspaper. Every day there is some sort of a horrible news about horrible things people are doing to each other for no rhyme and reason. We have to think what is the destiny? Where are we going? Are we going to hell or to heaven? What is our situation around? Can we help it? What's wrong with human beings is they are still in the complete control of ignorance. I would call it ignorance. And in that ignorance, in that darkness, they are doing this horrible thing. Nobody wants to understand that what we are doing is nothing but complete destruction. Is that our destiny, that we are going to get destroyed completely? What good are we doing under the name of some sort of nationality or maybe some religion, all kinds of things which are good, but we are doing all wrong things, fighting, Fighting is not the only thing. We hate anybody who can excite our hatred is very much adorable, very much liked. And under his guidance we form groups. All this is coming because this is the last judgment. I have told you, this is the last judgment. And this last judgment will really decide who are to be saved and who are to be doomed completely. It's a very, very serious thing, all of them who are aware, should think about it. Little patchwork here and a little patchwork is not going to happen. Whatever you may try, unless and until you transform human being, they cannot be saved. This transformation is not an impossible thing. It's not difficult. This is the time for transformation. This is a chance for transformation. And within us is placed the power, as Tao has described, 
is the mystical feminine power within us. All of them have this power. I'm not the first person to say that, but nobody has been able, perhaps so far, to understand it or to accept it that it should happen to you. You are born not only to be human beings, but you have to be superhuman. You have to enjoy yourself. Your life should be enjoyable. It should be blissful. It should not be a curse, morning till evening, worried about this, worried about that. That is why you are created. God had no intention of creating people who will be all the time worried how to quarrel, how to fight, how to save. But people who will live in complete harmony, peace and joy. That's why we are created. That is our destiny. That is not just I'm telling you, but it's a fact. So we have to be, we have to be transformed.
Dr. Ramesh Manoksha from the Department of Psychiatry <coughs> at Sydney University is our guest. Shirmatiji, in that talk we've just been listening to, says that self-realization and the form of meditation that that can open up can solve many problems. Well, as part of your PhD, Ramesh, you undertook investigation into the powers and the curative values of meditation. You set out to prove what Shirmatiji says in scientific, statistical unchallengeable terms. Can you tell us about that? Well, I suppose what uh, you're saying boils down to a couple of simple scientific questions that have uh, vexed scientists for 40 years of research into meditation. And the big question, the million dollar question you could say, is uh, does meditation have what we call a specific effect or uh, is there anything more to meditation than just a placebo effect? Now to illustrate to you the importance of the placebo effect or what we call the non-specific effect, that's a very important um, phenomenon that clinicians and psychologists and uh, uh, health professionals use every day. It's, it's bedside manner you could say. It's that effect that uh, you experience when you go to the doctor and you don't walk out with a prescription, but having talked about your problems, you come out of that uh, uh, consultation feeling a little better. Or going to see a psychologist and, and having a bit of a vent with someone who you think cares enables you to feel emotionally lighter. Or that effect that uh, occurs when you pet the dog or... Um, go for a walk around the block and just to sort of clear your mind. This is what we call the non-specific effect. It's something that was sort of con uh, encapsulated by a comment that one person said to me once and that is that when I'm sick I go to my doctor but when I f want to feel better I go to my hairdresser. <laughs> and <clears throat> she had more or less come to a very uh, accurate scientific assessment that there is this imp positive impact of Having a, having a positive experience of another person. But the question is, is meditation anything more than that? Because how do we justify thousands of years of yoga and meditation methods and methodologies and systems and philosophies if we can get that by seeing a hairdresser for a $20 haircut? Now, that's the big question, and that's the question we answered uh, in in the PhD program that I undertook, and which our research has shown is that uh, more or less, you know, unequivocally, uh, there is a specific effect associated with the practice of Saja Yoga meditation. But to put it even in more specific terms, the experience of mental silence or thoughtless awareness, which the Saja Yoga technique enables its practitioners to tap into is the sole source of that specific benefit. That experience occurs when the human central nervous system triggers a latent potential which presumably has been sitting inside us for millions of years of evolution awaiting a time when that latent capability should be 
awakened. That is the uniqueness of the human central nervous system. And in the state of mental silence, the human brain, our studies and other studies have shown, the human brain acts differently. It takes on a characteristic pattern of electrophysiological activity. It appears to be associated with a characteristic pattern of physiological activity in the periphery of the body. And that appears to trigger benefits that are manifested in behavioural improvements, improvements in mood, improvements in capability and, and uh, we could say performance. And in the long term, meaning after several weeks of practice, our studies did show that there were specific impacts on pathophysiological processes. In other words, those processes that occur in the body to cause disease. Scientists are, are starting to realise that there are, while there are many different kinds of disease, many of them converge on a common pathway of chronic inflammation. And remarkably, we have started to see, uh, albeit preliminary evidence, indicating that the mental silence experience, which is a phenomenon occurring in the central nervous system, impacting on the periphery of the body or the body itself does appear to have ameliorative effects on that process of chronic inflammation and hence this may explain the disease relieving effects of mental silence or thoughtless awareness. I'm intrigued by the fact that this uh, information that you gain through all these studies with so many people <coughs> in terms of oh, ADHD and, and stress and menopause and, and diabetes and asthma and so on has now all been published in quite notable medical journals. So it's uh, accepted as uh, valuable information in the scientific and medical world. You pointed out how expensive and labour-intensive the handling of mental health can be. This makes, of course, huge social and political problems, or makes for them. Yes. Um, I can see politicians running a mile from it, putting it uh, firmly into the too-hard basket. Uh, this 
makes work in this area very difficult. But the research work you've been doing is, is quite extensive. You were mentioning about the one-year study you were doing in, uh, uh, in primary schools. Yes. Um, you know, a lot of uh, mental health interventions, a lot of talk is focused on uh, dealing with mental health problems when they emerge, become, they manifest as mental health problems. But all good medicine, the best kind of medicine that we can practice is preventative medicine, the medicine that doesn't require pills or potions. And that applies to mental health as well. The difficulty we have is that we don't really understand what the mechanisms of causation are when it comes to mental illness. You mean how the brain ticks? Well, yes, how the brain ticks. And despite 10 years of massive progress in uh, brain imaging and, and uh, neuroscience that have uh, been in, uh, that have brought, come about as a result of um, access to cheap computing power and techn related technologies, we still haven't really understood this. Putting that issue aside, um, what we really need is a preventative strategy. It's all well and good to talk about how to uh, curing or the search for a cure or better treatment, and that's all very important to talk about. But what we need is a broad-based, top uh, integrated strategy in which prevention is emphasised. Now, we explored this and applied uh, the idea of meditation within this context. We conducted a study that involved a whole classroom of third-grade children, about years, uh, seven to eight years of age. Every morning, they were taught a simple form of meditation based on Saj Yoga, but very, very secularised, no religious overtones. And uh, they received this instruction with a, with a uh, qualified instructor 10 minutes per day every morning for a year. And we assessed the impact of this using some standardised mental health assessments. And we did these assessments at the beginning of the year and at the end of every term, and we mapped their progress. Now, at the end of the year, we were surprised to see that just as a result of 10 minutes per day of simple meditative techniques, these children had an 80% reduction in mental health risk. My goodness. And a 30% improvement in social skills. The teacher was convinced that these children had improved dramatically, but we were surprised to see that that was actually reflected in the formal assessments. And this was for, for the result of a, an intervention, you could say, or a, or a simple discipline of 10 minutes a day of teaching these kids how to tap into a natural state of mental silence, which, by the way, they're all very good at doing. In fact, they were better than doing it than adults. Did they, they, they didn't resist it? They, didn't. they enjoyed it. They used to look forward to it. They were disappointed when it didn't happen. And they, they knew how to use this experience more effectively than the adults do that we uh, teach in our research programs. Now, <clears throat> and this raises the whole, opens a whole new area uh, of mental health prevention where we clearly have shown these children that with uh, a simple skill, which is a natural skill, doesn't involve tablets or, or injections or anything like that, but it does reduce substantially their risk to developing mental illness down the track. So, you know, you and I, we have our children 
immunised to prevent infectious diseases. We send them along. We have school-based hearing tests, eye tests, all sorts of things designed to detect problems early or to prevent problems from occurring. But think about the number of tragedies we could avoid, the, the amount of heartache we could avoid, the amount of money that could be saved for the mental health system if we taught our children 10 minutes a day of meditation in the way that we did with these children in our um, project uh, last year. And this is what we need to look at. We immunise against infectious disease. We need to immunise against mental illness. And 10 minutes a day of this very simple practice appears to be a uniquely effective solution. I was mentioning earlier that, um, <coughs> you know, it is a, that mental illness is a... Is a something that the politicians, for instance, drop into the too-hard basket very quickly. They the do. reason being for this, I'm, I imagine that once um, um, mental health has been impaired, once, uh, once the beast has bitten, as it were, uh, then the, the, the cost to cure it is enormous. And mm. it, it's it's labour-intensive, it's... Uh, uh, it requires very experienced people and so on mm. um, to to even make any <coughs> sort of inroads into it. Precisely. But here you're suggesting that um, uh, tackled early, th this could change society. Do you do you f do you feel we're on the way towards? bringing this into schools generally or becoming that this will become or can become part of the culture? Uh, we are on the way. I think we're on the way because we're reaching a point where we realise that uh, we have no choice but to go down this path. That's one thing. The second thing is that there is growing demand for these kinds of interventions, universal primary prevention, secondary prevention to uh, to um, shut the gate before the horse is bolted and uh, uh, schools are recognizing this frontline practitioners teachers health professionals primary health professionals are recognizing the potential value of this the policymakers the politicians have yet to catch up because things like meditation are often politically incorrect uh, let's face it uh, ultimately, meditation is a spiritual practice and spirituality is something that for many people in our highly educated, industrialised society is an uh, unfashionable concept or at least the ideas, the spiritual ideas that underlie the mental science experience don't necessarily mesh with those of... Uh, um, uh, our preconceptions... However, those, they're not insurmountable. And I think we'll get to a point very soon where we have to realise that if they work, if the methods work, we need to accept them. Desperation is a good whip. Yes. Yes, and necessity is the mother of invention. <laughs> We're good with the clichés. <laughs> yes. Um, the... the, the um, you're not just involved, of course, in this immunisation territory because you're also involved, of course, in the territory of um, uh, curing or 
entering into the situation at a more advanced level. Mm. But it, it seems to me that um, you're covering a, a very wide area. The, the idea of immunization in schools and so on is um, a, a fascinating one. And, and Mental health immunization. Yes, it's a, like vaccination. Like vaccination without the injection. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and the fact that it's been, it's been tried with children who have enjoyed the process Indeed. and have gained from it consciously, mm. I think, is fascinating. Well, that brings us to the end of our program. I hope you've enjoyed it, and thanks very much to Dr. Ramesh Manoksha for coming in and, and um, sharing that information with us. Uh, if you are interested in Sahaja Yoga, then uh, uh, please follow up to develop your realization and join a lot of people and make a lot of friends uh, who are hoping to develop that mental silence that Ramesh was talking about. Two contacts, two useful contacts. Uh, telephone number 1300 725 252. 1300 725 252. We'll get um, uh, your information about where programs are held and so on. And also on the net www.freemeditation.com freemeditation.com.au Well, we're back again next week. Until then, good meditation. Bye-bye.